Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the battle for the Donbass underway in Ukraine and assess the likely outcome of some kind of victory that Putin could sell to his people who have been fired up by bloodthirsty propaganda on Russian state TV. With the May 9th Victory Day coming up, which is a major celebration of the end of World War II, will Putin be in a position to announce a ceasefire and declare victory? Joining us is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. He served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary-General, Human Rights Watch and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. He joins us to discuss his article at Newsweek, Putin's Iskander missiles are battle-tested and can carry nuclear weapons, and how the lesson of this war for NATO is not more military spending, but less dependence on oil and gas. Then we'll speak with a leading biographer of Donald Trump to explore whether this already mentally unstable man is getting even crazier and the extent to which many top Republicans are laughing at him behind his back, hoping that he will go away and stop endorsing candidates who could cost the GOP the chance of winning back the House and Senate in November. Joining us is Michael D'Antonio, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting at Newsday before going on to write many acclaimed books, including Atomic Harvest, The Truth About Donald Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump and the Pursuit of Success, and most recently co-authored with Peter Eisner, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity and Impeachment of Donald Trump. A contributor to CNN, we'll discuss his latest article, Will Trump Be Able to Wade His Way Out of Troubled Waters Again? And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is William Arkin, one of Empiricus Primary and Military Experts, whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. He served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And he has an article at Newsweek, Putin's Iskander missiles are battle-tested and can carry nuclear warheads. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin. Thanks for having me on again, Ian. Thanks so much. 
Well, thanks for joining us, and and I want to talk to you about the the battle for the Donbass underway in Ukraine's east. But just to touch on your latest article at uh, Newsweek, Putin's Iskander missiles are battle-tested and can carry nuclear warheads. There's a lot of discussion on state media in Russia about using nuclear weapons, and some of the nationalistic right-wingers have been urging Putin to do so. The CIA recently warned that the Russians could use a nuclear weapon, and Zelensky has mentioned it on a number of occasions. What's behind that concern, do you think, particularly on the part of the CIA? Well, I mean, we've been watching nukes since the war began. Uh, Putin did say in even his remarks on February 24th that if the West intervened, that they would experience something that they had never experienced before, and everybody took that to be a nuclear threat. And there have been nuclear threats that have been uh, levied by Russia ever since. I think that the concern at this point is that uh, it doesn't look like Russia is uh, achieving its uh, full goals in the South. It's it's not really being successful in its offensive in the Donbass. Uh, and it's being pushed back in some areas uh, on the edges of where uh, Russian forces have advanced. So I, I, overall, I think there is concern that, that the Russians might escalate. And of course, obviously, since 75% of their ground forces are already engaged in the war and Russia has very little reserve left, uh, escalation could mean chemical or biological or nuclear weapons. And, and there are other escalations that they could undertake. So uh, I, I think U.S. intelligence at this point is very closely watching what's happening with the nuclear arsenal, trying to see whether or not there are any signs of movements or changes that might indicate uh, uh, some kind of a nuclear attack. Uh, I'm not necessarily uh, of the opinion that one is imminent or is even uh, likely in the future, uh, but it does give you a sense of how desperate the Russians are getting. So we have a false picture of the war. We, we kind of are getting fed a line that says that the Ukrainians are losing, that the Russians are undertaking a major advance, and that somehow this puts Ukraine's back up against the wall, that the West is going to intervene, and that if the West intervenes, there's a nuclear threat. I don't quite see it that way, Ian. I see it more that they are stalemated on the front lines, that Ukraine really doesn't have a chance of ejecting Russia from all of Ukraine, that Russia doesn't really have a chance of defeating Ukrainian forces in any decisive way, And so they're sort of at a stalemate, even if they continued to fight for weeks, they're still at a stalemate. And it's under those circumstances that Putin may perceive that uh, Russia and the state of the state, the the, the core of Russia um, uh, is is threatened. And that and that then gets to the very core of Russian nuclear doctrine, which is that the justification for using nuclear weapons is if the state is indeed threatened. But it's actually Putin that's threatened, isn't it? If you think about it. Well, I think that that's true. I, I, I you know, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not he is able to uh, survive. But a lot of this is based upon whatever the outcome is going to be, how Putin is going to be able to declare victory and go home, which I think is what we should be looking for next. 
And um, let's remember that in wars like in Iraq in 1991, uh, everybody pretty much thought, well, okay, the Iraqi army has been completely defeated. There's a Kurdish and Shia uprising in Iraq. Saddam's days are numbered, and yet he lasted another decade. Uh, I, I think that Putin is, uh, you know, much more solidly in 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 place in Russia, and the likelihood of him being overthrown is very small. But whether he can survive the war in the sense that Russia will be able to bounce back or Russia will be able to recover, you know, that's the key question for the future. So much is being made of the date, May the 9th, which is Victory Day, which is a big deal in Russia and the former Soviet Union, the day of the end of World War Two in Europe. Does that date trouble you in the sense of what we're talking about here, the use of nuclear weapons? If, is there any possibility that there'll be something dramatic happen on that day? Because he can't, he can't have a victory parade and be empty-handed. Well, Ian, see, that's funny. I see it exactly the opposite way, that May 9th is a real opportunity. Uh, you know, if if the Russians are able to make enough progress just in the South, uh, in terms of uh, taking additional territory in Donetsk and Luhansk provinces, uh, then in fact, the Russians might be able to pull back their forces from Mikolaev and Kherson, which is further to the west, uh, they might be able to achieve a complete victory in Mariupol, and then they would be able to claim we've now restored control over the Donbass. And if they're able to do that, uh, which means that they will withdraw from their gains around Kharkiv, which is uh, on, uh, near the Russian border, but outside of Donbass, and they would withdraw from their objective of trying to take Odessa in the south because it's further to the west and outside Donbass. Uh, they could consolidate their forces inside those two Ukrainian provinces and declare victory. And we might say, oh, it's not victory. And the Ukrainians might say, we're not giving up this territory ever. But the reality is that, that Putin could walk away and say, we achieved our goals in the north, which they didn't. We achieved our goals in the south, which they didn't. But they did do one thing that the Russians said that they wanted to do, which is to demilitarize Ukraine. And the Ukrainian military has has taken a beating. Uh, it, it, it has lost as much materiel by proportion that the Russians have lost. So I see a scenario much more where Putin is able to declare victory and, and and therefore May 9th is an important date because it might be one that's looming that allows him to declare victory and have his celebration, even though it is not a victory in our eyes. And again, I'm speaking with William Arkin, one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. He served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. And he's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, 
and his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and he has an article at Newsweek, Putin's Iskander missiles are battle-tested and can carry nuclear weapons. So it seems to me, uh, Bill, that it's unlikely that if your scenario were to come to pass on May the 9th, it seems unlikely to me that Putin would would accept a peace treaty. He'd rather accept an armistice, wouldn't he? Because his whole purpose and MO since 2014 has been to destabilize Ukraine on the cheap. And wouldn't an armistice be more likely than a peace agreement? I don't even see an armistice, Ian. I more likely see a ceasefire, which are, with a very, with a very uncomfortable. A demilitarized zone or something created between the forces of Russia and Ukraine, uh, where the Russians are going to try to sit on their whatever gains they've managed to consolidate, and the Ukrainians are going to continue to uh, hold the border area and militarize that as well. So to me, we're really talking about a ceasefire. We're really talking about whatever will happen in the temporary space, not what will eventually be the solution of the war. And if people rush ahead and think about what the outcome is going to be and ignore what the prospects are of just stopping the fighting, then they're missing the the the, the window of May 9th in a way. They're they're thinking, well, we, we will eventually send enough arms to Ukraine that they'll be able to uh, take over their territory and restore the borders. And I think that's just an unlikely scenario. Uh, and on the other hand, I don't see the Russians ever really being able to make more progress than they've made. Let's remember, on February 24th, the Russian forces arrayed all around the eastern periphery of Ukraine, were rested, ready, fed, their material was all in as good a shape as it could ever be, and they were not able to get even major control of Chernihiv in the north or Kiev, and they were not able to make progress and withdrew. They lost. So now we imagine that a month and a half later that somehow these forces, which are now depleted of materiel with with 20,000 casualties, with no supply lines, no fuel, and no food are going to do better in the South. It's just a fanciful scenario on people's minds that somehow there's a great offensive coming. Yes, they've moved their forces around in order to focus on this more short-term objective. But the reality is, is that the Russians are completely defeated and, and they don't have a reserve to bring in. Yes, they can bring in reservists and they can bring in conscripts and they can bring in volunteers and people who are volunteered, but I don't see the scenario unfolding in which the Russians are going to be able to do something that they weren't able to do on February 24th. And so I see it as a standoff and the standoff then becomes the opportunity for a ceasefire to happen. But we don't know. I mean, we seem to know a lot more about the Russian military situation than we do about the Ukrainian military situation. They've clearly been depleted, have they not? And they're in this battle underway now, they will suffer more casualties. So what kind of backup, what kind of reserves do they have? Well, one of the effects of the Ukrainian 
a victory in the north and the Russian withdrawal is that they can move some of those forces to the south and they have been moving them. Uh, the Ukrainians did have a reserve in western Ukraine, which has you know, barely been touched as part of the war. And those reserves can be brought to, to bear. I mean, the really the biggest problem that the Ukrainians have at this point is, is actual guns and ammunition, uh, anti-tank weapons, uh, surface-to-air missiles, that, which are flowing in. There's no question that they're flowing in. So, and the defense always has an advantage over the offense. And in this particular case, it's not just a well-motivated defense. It's also people defending their own territory, their own lands. They, they not only have the psychological advantage in that regard, but they have a superior knowledge of the area over Russian forces. So I don't see the the Ukrainians as being untouched. I think that they have been depleted. Uh, as I said earlier, I think that the Ukrainians have probably had the same amount of materiel uh, destroyed and, and damaged as the Russians did by proportion of the size of their force. And we know that the Ukrainians have suffered thousands of casualties. But the reality is, is they're defending their homeland with a much greater psychological edge and also at the same time uh, facing a Russian force, which is not really still not able to pull together its logistical supply lines uh, to be able to adequately supply and replenish the troops at the front. And again, I'm speaking with William Arkin, who is a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts. He is the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline for 9-11, and he has an article at Newsweek, Putin's Iskander Missiles Are Battle-Tested and Can Carry Nuclear Warheads. So... Is there a disconnect, though? We started out talking about Russian threat of using tactical nuclear weapons. At the same time, the Russians have been restrained, it seems, in the fact that NATO planes, their chartered 747s, have been landing at Kiev airport, unloading the very weaponry that we're talking about, the anti-tank and anti- and the Stinger missiles and artillery and ammunition that's all happening, and only recently did the Russians say that they might target NATO convoys. So they haven't pulled that trigger yet, have they? No, there could be an escalation in regards to the Russians attacking the resupply. But the danger for Russia of doing so is that it itself is an escalation that NATO might have to respond to. So I think the Russians have been reluctant to uh, attack uh, the roads and attack the 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 arms that are coming in, uh, and really in a kind of crazy uh, reciprocity, uh, the Ukrainians have been restrained in terms of attacking Russian forces in Belarus or Russian forces in Russia itself. So both sides have exercised some significant restraint in terms of what they're doing. But again, I want to stress to you, Ian that the prospects of the use of nuclear weapons really are if Russia perceives that the state is, is under threat, the state of Russia. And that means a combination of its military defeat plus 
the impact of economic sanctions in, in Russia. And, and we're not getting a very clear picture of what the situation is inside Russia. We're, we're just not getting it right now. And so I don't know whether or not Putin is more powerful because people support the war or Putin is threatened because there are voices inside the Russian government that are saying, uh, you've blundered here. And so if the Russian state itself is threatened, uh, then, then we need to be concerned with the question of escalation. What I wrote this week was that the US intelligence community was increasing their, uh, their focus on, you, uh, on Russian nukes because they uh, were looking for any movements or any signs that Russia might be actually uh, preparing a nuclear attack. Uh, and and I and again I want to stress that there have been some changes in the past week. Ian, on Wednesday, uh, the Biden administration announced another uh, 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 supply of arms that were being given to Ukraine, 830 million dollars worth of arms. Now it's 3.2 billion overall, and in that uh, weaponry uh, was contained. 155 millimeter artillery guns. And this is the first time that the United States has arguably supplied Ukraine with, quote, offensive weapons, offensive weapons. Now, it's just artillery that can only fire 20 miles or so, but it is a change in that the United States is providing Ukraine with offensive weapons, which kind of opens up the door for other NATO nations to supply Ukraine with offensive weapons. Now, I don't see that necessarily as a sign of escalation on the part of Ukraine, but I do see it as something that we should pay close attention to because it might indicate that Russia feels like the game has shifted. Well, but where are these weapons in the pipeline? I mean, Malcolm Nance, who's been a regular on MSNBC, has actually joined in the fight with the international brigade that Zelensky's formed in the Donbass, and he's saying or tweeting that we need counter-battery radar because of Russian incoming Russian artillery. So the howitzers that are promised, my understanding is that the Ukrainians are being trained on them in Poland. So... They haven't reached the front, and the British apparently are going to provide these tank-mounted Stormer missile launches, which are very effective. I don't know whether that's the reason why Putin is mad at uh, Boris Johnson and has banned him, but what's your understanding about the weaponry that Zelensky's been asking for? Where is it in the pipeline? Well, what we do know is that thousands of anti-tank weapons and thousands of surface-to-air missiles have made their way to the front. We do know that. And we see the effects, particularly of Javelin and some of the other anti-tank weapons. And there have been a couple of shoot-downs recently uh, that have been associated with Stingers, which is uh, in the NATO arsenal. So we do know that. I don't think much of this heavier material is, is, is yet made it. But again, it's like the United States and NATO are doing what they can do within the policy that they set with them for themselves, which was that they were not going to physically intervene themselves. And though it might look as if nothing is happening, it, 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 and there's no question that there's a long list of things that Ukraine 
desires and needs. But there's also a pipeline, as you said, Ian, and there's only so much that can be flooded into Ukraine. There's only so much that they can assimilate into the use of their forces. And so it, it's a process. It's a process that goes on. Is the war going to, quote, go on long enough, unquote, for this to have an effect? I think the answer is no, because I think both sides really are stalemated. But the reality is that the that the West is, is doing what it said it was going to do, and it is certainly increasing that support for Ukraine. Whether that's enough, I don't know. As for people on the ground saying we need counter-battery radar or we need this or we need that, you know what? People on the ground can say whatever they want to say from their very narrow view of what's in front of them. But when you look at overall, overall, it's basically tank ammunition, artillery ammunition, anti-tank weapons, and surface-to-air missiles. That's what's ultimately going to sustain Ukrainian fighting in the short term. And in the short term, I think that the Ukrainians are getting the material that they need. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Bill Arkin, let's go back to the scenario of May the 9th, the possibility of Putin declaring some kind of victory on Victory Day. And you mentioned that the most likely scenario would be some kind of ceasefire. So on the Ukrainian side, they're not going to stop and NATO's not going to stop supplying weapons, right? So the idea that Putin in, invaded Ukraine because he was afraid of Ukraine joining NATO, well, to my mind, it looks as if in many ways Ukraine is joining NATO, at least in terms of weaponry. So how do you see a future Ukraine? They're, obviously, they're not going to disarm. They may declare some form of neutrality, but they're going to be neutral but heavily armed, aren't they? I think that that is the scenario, Ian. I mean, President Zelensky has already said that he is willing to not join NATO and create a, a, a an independent, neutral country. But, you know, just like a Switzerland or a Sweden, they're, they're a well-armed, independent and neutral country. Uh, I think that that is already a concession which the uh, Ukrainians have offered to the Russians in these negotiations. So... Uh, I, I the the door is certainly open for the two sides to find the path to a ceasefire, uh, which which in my mind is the most important thing to achieve in the short run because that uh, stops the killing of Ukrainian civilians who are in the middle of of this conflict. Uh, but I think in the midterm we're more likely to see a standoff between the two sides in which Russia has not conceded. Uh, its advances in the Donbass and, and Ukraine has not given up on uh, retaking its own territory, then begins a long period of negotiations. And uh, that long period of negotiations probably could go on for decades. But if the United States and the West continues with its sanctions against Russia, and if Russia is indeed as damaged militarily as we perceive that it is, then the truth of the matter is that in the short term, midterm and long term, the Russian state is declining and getting weaker and weaker. And the continuation of sanctions are going to really take a bite in Russia. And so I don't see this as a permanent solution as long as the United States and the West keeps up their pressure on Russia and make sure that the ultimate outcome here is not 
is not giving up the Donbass region, but ultimately uh, restoring Ukrainian sovereignty over its own territory. But there's just one last thing there that occurs to me, and I've tried to look into it, Bill, and that is the irony that the Ukrainians and the Germans and the Western Europeans, uh, NATO members, are in effect financing the war against them. The pipeline that carries Russian gas to Germany and and other European customers uh, goes through Ukraine. The other one, the new one, Nord Stream 2, shut down. The Ukrainians have not touched that pipeline. It's above ground. It's an obviously easy military target. How do they get out of that conundrum of financing the aggressor? Well, if I were looking at Western Europe in the long term, and I said to the people of Western Europe, hey, you have a choice here. You know, you can you can have a new Cold War and spend a lot of money on military goods and the military, or you can change your energy situation in the long term and eliminate the Russian threat <laughs> and the le- Russian leverage over Western Europe. I, I think you want to choose the latter and not the former. And so right now the debate is, oh my God, Russia, you know, Russia is such a threat. We need to spend more. We need to spend more. We need to do more militarily. When in fact, what the Ukraine war says to me is Russia is a paper tiger. It's, 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 been, it's been really badly damaged militarily. Economically, it's falling apart. And so Russia really doesn't present this threat to Western Europe that it once did. That only thing that saves Russia at this point is nuclear weapons. And we need to find the right ingredients by which we move into the future with less of a military threat and less of a military emphasis and more of a diplomatic and, a, and, a, and an energy independent emphasis. And I think that that's a possibility of the outcome of the Ukraine war that strategically uh, really makes it a victory for NATO. Well, William Argan, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with William Arkin, one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. He served in Army intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to a wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. And he's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, And his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And he has an article at Newsweek, Putin's Iskander missiles are battle-tested and can carry nuclear warheads. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with the leading biographer of Donald Trump to explore whether this already mentally unstable man is getting even crazier. Two grain ships will pull back to their ports Depleted of everything that shoots flames and reports And in the morning the shells will wash up on the shore And the mighty of earth will have no other recourse But to shiver and shake 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael D'Antonio, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting at Newsday before going on to write many acclaimed books, including Atomic Harvest, The Truth About Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump and the Pursuit of Success, and most recently co-authored with Peter Eisner, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity, and Impeachment of Donald Trump. I contributed to CNN his latest article there is, Will Trump be able to wade his way out of troubled waters again? Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael D'Antonio. Great to be back with you, Ian. So, Michael, the, the ultimate nightmare scenario is that Putin survives and Trump is re-elected in 2024. And that will be the end of the world as we know it, because the full story about the relationship and uh, what the ties, to put it mildly, between Putin and Trump have still not really been fleshed out. And, of course, a lot of it's in these the Bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report, which very few people have read. So it's amazing that this guy has been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his business life and all of his political life. So wishful thinking aside, tell me that he's not going to come back in 2024? Well, I can't tell you that he won't run again. I, I think that he's inclined to do that. Um, much depends, as you pointed out, I think, on this, the findings of now the January 6th committee, which is making good headway. Uh, I know a couple of members of the committee uh, been talking off the record with them, they've really just revealed the barest uh, hint of what they have in their possession and planned some pretty explosive hearings, public hearings for later this year. So I think there's a lot left to see. Um, but as you noted, he has been one step ahead of the sheriff his entire life. And he also isn't governed at all by the sense of propriety or decency or even shame that the rest of us tend to honor. So there's a good chance he'll run again no matter what. I think that the the showdown could be between him and DeSantis, the governor of Florida. DeSantis might prevail. Um, unfortunately, he's sort of a mini-Trump, so Lord knows what we'll get if he becomes president. Um, but there are a few hurdles there. And I guess the last thing that I'd note is that there are some people waking up in the Republican Party, former uh, strong Trump supporters uh, like McConnell, the Senate minority leader, uh, like, I think, Senator Mike Lee in Utah, who was one who stood up against the insurrection eventually, uh, that it's not as clear. The, the pathway for Trump is not as wide open as he would hope it to be. But the latest text between Senator Mike Lee and Mark Meadows indicate the opposite, don't they, Michael? I mean, he, he did make a speech on the on the Senate floor on the night of January the 6th, Mike Lee, and endorsed the idea of going ahead and counting the Electoral College votes 
properly, but these texts reveal that he was sort of in on the insurgency, you know, right from the day after the election through to January the 6th. Well, I think he was supportive of it, um, but also questioning it. There's some evidence that I've seen that he's he was wavering, uh, that more than one senator wavered, and certainly in the House there are quite a few Republicans who refused to go along. Now, I'm not saying that there's a groundswell against Donald Trump, but I also see someone like Adam Kinzinger uh, and Liz Cheney on the January 6th committee getting some respect from rank-and-file Republicans around the country. Uh, Cheney is raising a lot of money. Uh, Kinzinger is going to have a pretty well-funded uh, America First type. Uh, I think it's country over party, maybe what he's calling it, uh, organization that emphasizes what we tend to agree on of uh, issues. And I think there's uh, hope that Trump won't be so powerful. Well, is there a possibility, I mean, it seemed manifest that he's been mentally unstable from day one, you know, with this extreme narcissism and the idea that this whole country's being put through this agony because his father was such a horrible Nazi. <laughs> right, you're right <laughs> about all of this. I, I'm not going to correct you. Well, but I mean, the idea that because of the hideous upbringing from this terrible father, where you he indoctrinated this poor kid in, and you can't be a loser, you can't be a loser, and he saw his older brother turn into an alcoholic, the idea that because of these psychological scars, this man can't accept defeat, and he's putting this nation through this agony of stop the steal, all because he simply cannot accept the fact that he lost an election. I mean... If you look at it in those lights, it's pretty surreal that we're all collateral damage, aren't we, Michael? Well, we are. And, and it, as we look at um, what's going on in Ukraine, it's a, it, I would say it's an extension of the Trump-Putin uh, problem and that they, too, are suffering because Trump signaled to Putin, I think, that anything was okay. Uh, I think that... They're men cut from the same cloth, and they're a tra traumatized country, but I think we are too in, in our own way. And whole nations can be traumatized and can suffer from trauma. Uh, you look at most countries post-war, and they all suffer. Uh, the population suffers as a whole. And I think ours is suffering as well, and, and it's now to some degree, a troubled social environment where we all can't even speak to each other. Uh, I just learned yesterday a young man I know and his, uh, his partner who he expected to marry have broken up over the COVID vaccine. And they're, they're both in healthcare. And, you know, he's vaccinated and boosted, and she thinks that ivermectin, you know, this horse pill is the option. Uh, it, it's stunning what's happened to our society. But that's Putin's 
aim, isn't it? To divide us and turn us against each other. And Donald Trump is the perfect instrument. Well, and it's been his aim as well. And one of the things that you mentioned was that he can't accept defeat. And that's absolutely true. But if we examine both the 2016 election and the 2020 election, one of his methods is always to cheat ahead of the scorekeeper. So his desire is always to set the rules of the game himself or manipulate the rules so that, fair or not, he will prevail. And he did that in 2016 by early on saying that the election will be rigged uh, just in case it was clear that he lost. He could uh, prosecute the same kind of complaint that he did in 2020. And we know now that Stop the Steal was established uh, as a website and a campaign ideal in late summer of 2020, and that Donald Trump Jr. was planning this assault on our uh, democracy before the votes were counted. So it's not only that he can't he can't bear losing. I think it's that he can't bear playing any any game, any competition on a level playing field. It, it always has to be skewed to his advantage. And then, you know, we discover why no victory is satisfying for him. No achievement is satisfying because he knows he's reached it dishonestly. And again, I'm speaking with Michael D'Antonio, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting at Newsday before going on to write many acclaimed books, including Atomic Harvest, The Truth About Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump in the Pursuit of Success, and most recently co-authored with Peter Eisner, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity and Impeachment of Donald Trump. He's a contributor to CNN, where his latest article is, Will Trump Be Able to Wade His Way Out of Troubled Waters? So just to going back to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, we know privately he hates Trump. And shortly after January the 6th, he took to the Senate floor and excoriated Trump and held him responsible and actually told the Democrats, gave them a roadmap, you know, you can put this guy in jail, essentially, what is what he was saying. So is it possible, Michael, that McConnell and other Republican leaders like him who privately detest Trump, can they do something? Because in the short term, it seems that McConnell and all of them are going along, and I think even to some extent... Liz Cheney with Stop the Steal. Stop the Steal has been a gift to them. And are they using Trump in terms of Stop the Steal? Because I haven't heard any Republican say, I'm embarrassed about the voter suppression underway on behalf of my party and that we're we're becoming the Viktor Orban's party and we're working zealously behind the scenes at the state level to create a one-party state here in the United States. None of them, are, and frankly, not even the damn Democrats, are, their hair should be on fire. So what's going on in that regard? Is Trump basically being used and Stop the Steal is being used by the Republicans, even if they don't like him? Most definitely. I think you've uh, put your finger on something essential. And I agree with you that the Democrats should have their hair on fire, the whole country 
should be made aware of this. And right now it's only known by progressives and some liberals and certainly Democrats on Capitol Hill know what's going on. But I think that they can't imagine a strategy to fix it. And where McConnell is concerned, the terrifying thing about him is that he will say outright that it's party over country for him, party over democracy for him. So when you say that the pursuit of a one-party state like Orban's is possible, I think it's what's going on. And that's the scarier thing behind the Trump phenomenon. You know, so do we have a would-be dictator who uh, failed to cement his status but left in place a pathway or an apparatus to create an authoritarian system going forward? That is the great danger that we face. And I, it's really hard to imagine a way out of it because were some of these problems to make it to the court, we can't be sure that the court would uphold the rule of law and the Constitution, because that uh, part of the government, that branch of the government, has been seated with so many Trump loyalists, including members of the Supreme Court. So we're not out of the woods, even if Donald Trump is defeated. Uh, It's a very, very serious problem. So, Michael D'Antonio, what do you think is going on then with Merrick Garland? My understanding is that even though he's getting slammed by a lot of Democrats who think he's sitting on his hands, that he's being careful because the worst thing that could possibly happen is if you indict Trump and then he he skates. In other words, the case against him is not strong enough to put him in an orange jumpsuit or, or frankly, in a straitjacket, whichever. So isn't, isn't that the problem, that he's being cautious as opposed to cowardly? I agree. He is being cautious. There's no way that he doesn't understand that this is a state of emergency that we're in. Um, and I also think that he's concerned to play by the rules even when others don't. And I don't know if we've lost, you know, past the point where that's appropriate. You know, this is this is the challenge to everyone who wants to uphold our system and wants things to be done in a just and democratic way, is do you rush forward and try to correct things uh, now in an emergency fashion, or do you proceed deliberately? And the only problem that I have with proceeding deliberately is that I suspect that it doesn't matter to those who will react so violently against whatever he does. I think if he moves carefully, dots all the I's, crosses all the T's, and doesn't indict anyone who's not fully worthy of indictment and uh, likely to be convicted, the backlash will be furious. Uh, and so this is a, a such a perilous time, uh, and I don't envy him trying to make that decision. So let's talk a little about your article at CNN, Will Trump Be Able to Wade His Way Out of Troubled Waters Again? 
how much do you think that the, the behind the scenes you mentioned, for example, Frank Luntz, the longtime GOP pollster, who said that many Republicans are laughing at Trump in private, quoting him, they won't say it, but behind his back they think he's a child. They're laughing at him. Trump isn't the same man he was a year ago. So there seems to be a deterioration. I mean, I earlier was suggesting that he's always been mentally unstable. Even the Russians in their National Security Council meeting when they decided to support him back in 2016, they concluded that he was mentally unstable. But how much is of that sort of snickering behind Trump's back is going on? And do you expect that to grow? I think a great deal of it is going on. I do expect it to grow. I also think that there's a pent-up level of ambition among Republicans who are sick of this and would like to press their own candidacies and really don't like him playing kingmaker in a way that may actually hurt them. So they wind up saying to him, you know, or or to each other, he's going to cost us the Senate and he's Biden's going to get all the judges he wants to appoint in the same way that he cost Republicans the Senate in 2020 in Georgia. So his interference in these races and his attempt to push his anointed candidates forward is a risky thing. And this is why people are talking about him being unstable. And I also think that talk of him being weak and the fact that Luntz is sharing that and others are sharing it privately is intentional. I think it's meant to sow doubt among the Republican faithful and to encourage them to think of alternatives. So this is something being played on many levels, uh, but part of it, I think, is sincere that they've, they're exhausted by it. You know, so many Republicans are as exhausted as the rest of us uh, by this man. So his endorsements of J.D. Vance, and of course J.D. Vance is funded by Peter Thiel, who's a libertarian billionaire, who also is funding the campaign in Arizona for a guy with, unfortunately, my namesake. (laughs) So... (laughs) Then he's going all in with Madison Cawthorn, who has really irritated the House Republican leadership by suggesting that there are all kinds of uh, orgies and and, uh, cocaine parties going on amongst Republican lawmakers. And then you've got the other guy that he's Dr. Oz. Mm -hmm. He's also endorsing him. Is it just simply this, that if you say Donald Trump walks on water, he's the greatest thing that ever happened to humanity and we love him, that's it, right? You get his endorsement. Is there any other qualification that these people have in terms of Trump's endorsement as opposed to just being supplicants and declaring unyielding fealty? Well, in Pennsylvania and Ohio, where he endorsed Dr. Oz and um, J.D. Vance, there were other candidates who were just as... uh, servile, just as interested in being his lapdogs 
And in those cases, he chose the one with the most celebrity. So he also really values celebrity, especially television experience. And if somebody's really good on TV, that to him matters more than any policy they could uh, promote. So you're right that it has to be that a person is a, a craven supplicant to Donald Trump. But given the choice among supplicants, he's going to take the one that he thinks is telegenic. And none of this reassures party leaders in these states where they understand the electorate. And in, you know, look at Ohio and Pennsylvania. Those are two purple states. So do you provoke the voters with a controversial choice, which both of these are? Or do you go for a traditional Republican who might fare better? I, I think that the big problem for the GOP is that he's promoting people who could win a primary but might not prevail in the general election. So when the Republican governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, said to the Gridiron Club in Washington, D.C., he ended his talked about Trump in, in, in glowing terms and then added, nah, I'm kidding, he's effing crazy. That apparently got a pretty big applause line, didn't it? It went over very well. In, and I think it's because everyone knows it. Um, only the least uh, sophisticated part of the Republican Party refuses to see that. Um, most of these folks who have sought his endorsement also believe that he's crazy and they're lying to him. Uh, the funny thing, this really bizarre thing about Trump is he would rather you lie to his face about how much you love him than tell him the truth. And it, time and time again, he's felt disappointed and um, betrayed by people when they never really cared for him in the first place and were just using him. And, and he acts as if he's shocked by this. So this does work. You can go to him, lie to his face, and walk away with what you're seeking. And um, that's what people are competing to do. But they all know he's crazy. I mean, this is a very disturbed man who should never be let close to the levers of power, but managed to get there. And just in the last few seconds here, what does it say about us, Michael? Well, it says that a far greater proportion of us are enthralled by uh, depravity and are willing to go along with someone who sort of pokes their finger in the eye of the establishment. And perhaps we like to be lied to as well, which is a very sad thing. Marco D'Antonio, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Great to be with you.
And again, I've been speaking with Michael D'Antonio, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting at Newsday before going on to write many acclaimed books, including Atomic Harvest, The Truth About Trump, Never Enough, Donald Trump and the Pursuit of Success, and most recently co-authored with Peter Eisner, High Crimes, The Corruption, Impunity and Impeachment of Donald Trump. He's a contributor to CNN, where his latest article is, Will Trump Be Able to Wade His Way Out of Troubled Waters Again? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine